Namo dasa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble and fully self-enlightened one. Is that a bit too loud? It's all right, is it? <clears throat> okay. Uh, what I want to do is just um, just go over the basic technique, and then I want to cover, just generally speaking, how we deal with various mental states, physical states, and uh, perhaps just mention the uh, three characteristics of existence, as they're called. <clears throat> so... Every, you know, every vipassana technique you come across has its own little ways and means to try and get us to be in the present moment. And um, that's really what these techniques are about. The techniques themselves don't achieve insight. It's getting this attention, this mindfulness in a, position, in a particular position which allows insight to arise. And although we're talking about the same faculty... It has both a passive and an active side. So the passive side is what you're developing when you're in that state of quiet abiding, abiding in the present moment. And you're developing uh, three of the factors of enlightenment, the passive factors, which is this calmness, steadiness of attention. Um, I don't like using the word concentration because it gets sort of knitted brows and effort. <laughs> but it's just steadiness of attention. You know how attentive you are to a good film? Well, that's about it. So you, don't have to, you don't have to try to be attentive when the film's grasped you, but that's the sort of attention you need, see? Fully locked in to what you're attending. And this attitude of equanimity, which is quite difficult for us because you know, we're brought up always to react and respond and do something. But this is more like just receiving, just, just being present and just being aware of what's coming in, full stop. See? Not reacting, not responding. You can't stop that, but we'll come to that in a minute, this idea of the, of the way the mind grasps onto objects. See? <clears throat> and that's the passive side, that's the sati, right? that's the awareness. And the other side is this panya, which is an intuitive grasp of things. It's an intelligence. And it comes after the looking, see? First you look and then you see. It's not a case of trying... See, we try to see something before we've fully looked. Hmm? It's like you might look at a picture in a gallery and you're already looking for something rather than waiting for the, for the picture to come into you. You know, especially with um, uh, more abstract art... We're trying to make sense of it. So we're trying to think about it rather than let the picture affect us. We can do it in certain circumstances. Like we're very happy to sit in a, in a countryside place and sort of absorb nature, as it were, without looking for something. But uh, it's that attitude of really just opening up to something and then having the confidence, having um, 
certain faith that within us there is this intuitive wisdom, this intuitive intelligence uh, that grasps things, that just understands the way things are. And uh, <clears throat> these techniques are really just there to try to bring us to that point. See, Now, because we can't have an insight because we want to, you, know, I, you can't just sit down and say, well, I'm now going to become enlightened. It would be good, wouldn't it? Just, <laughs> I am now going to become awakened. I've got a, I've got a weekend or a week and I'll, I'll sort of crack it. Uh, it can be a bit disappointing if you go to a course with that sort of attitude, yeah? So it's a case of recognizing that insights are beyond our control, but the awareness isn't. And that's where the Buddha's teaching is, shall we say, very fine, very clear. He doesn't ask us to have insight. He says, just place the attention, just place your awareness, your mindfulness, in a particular way, and insights will arise. So in the opening of the discourse on how to establish this right mindfulness, remember mindfulness is mindfulness. You know, if, I mean, if you, if you decide to rob a bank, you'll be definitely mindful. But it's not the sort of mindfulness that leads to liberation. Yeah? So <clears throat> this uh, establishing of right mindfulness is where all his teaching centers on the understanding that once that's rightly established, the rest arises. So he starts off by telling us just to become aware of the breath. Uh, the breath is a neutral feeling. It's always there, hopefully. And you can, just, you can just sort of relax your attention on it and get in contact with it. That's your first state, just to contact with it. Uh, in his own words, he would say he knows it's a long breath. They know it's a, a short breath. But it's basically just contacting the feeling of the breath. Then one begins to observe it as a pleasant neutral sensation, right? If you, if you don't see the pleasantness of it, the ease of the flow, then you begin to see it just as neutral. And that's fine, you can do that, but the mind's always attracted, remember, to what's pleasant. Hmm? There's a natural desire to be with what is pleasant rather than neutral or unpleasant. So it's beginning to just feel the breath as a pleasant sensation, pleasant movement, that, as it were, helps us just to relax upon it. As you relax upon it, that's when, uh, when you feel fairly steady, you awaken, as it were, the ability to see it uh, as something which is transient. Right? So you're looking at it, but you're looking at it now from the point of view of transiency, of impermanence, that it has a beginning and an end. And that, in a way, is awakening this intelligence, this spiritual intelligence that wants to see the way things really are. And it's just doing that, that he says, is enough. And he says it'll just grow naturally until insight arises. These insights that we talk about, on the rare occasion, they are <clears throat> sort of huge bursts upon a person and their whole life changes around. But unfortunately for most of us, they're just little insights that sort of accumulate and congregate until we can see over a period of time a certain change in the way we think about things, the way we relate to things, and the way we act. You'd be, uh, you would not disappoint yourself if you thought in terms of maybe 25 years. Wouldn't, if, you, if you think any shorter than that, then you may be disappointed. So it's a case of slowly building up this inner experience, this inner knowing of 
these three characteristics. And the first one, which is very obvious to us, is this process, this impermanence, the fact that everything we experience is always in a, in a state of passing. It arises and passes. It arises and passes. Our problem, remember, is to only really perceive the arising. Before it's passed, we've moved on to something else. The attention's flitted, and therefore we never catch the ending of things. And the next one is to do with our psychology, uh, a more sort of obvious, perhaps, state for us to be aware of is uh, whether we are grasping or not grasping, wanting or not wanting, whether what we're experiencing is pleasant or unpleasant. Now, when we uh, approach those sorts of things, then we, enter, we, we begin to deal with what's known as the five hindrances. And these are basically just our emotional states. And I'll, later on, I, I'll go into them in more detail for those of you who are staying for a week. But basically, they split into those things which make us excited and those things which make us fall asleep. So those things that make us excited are very pleasant things, planning our holidays, romance, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, also very exciting is angry things, uh, getting our vengeance, uh, winning, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, the downside tends to be uh, boredom, uh, a bit of heaviness, a bit of depression in which we prefer just to fall asleep. And that's why uh, sleep is so attractive, because there's no suffering in oblivion. Unfortunately, we keep waking up. So we find it's a bit of a false escape. So you can see that as things excite you, there are things that we can do to calm ourselves down. And as things uh, make you fall asleep and become dozy and dull-minded, there are things you can do to lift yourself up. Hmm? When these things arise, what we want to also be aware of is our relationship to what it is we're experiencing. So when something is very pleasant, you can see you know, the conditioning is to begin to develop it. And how do we develop those things? We develop it through the mind. Hmm? So if, for instance, something arises in the mind which is a pleasant memory, the mind will grasp it and, and continue with the narrative. And through the narrative, this emotional state begins to develop itself and we feel happier and happier or more and more depressed. Yeah? So a little bit of depression comes up and it grasps it sort of grasps the storyline or it begins to see the world in a particular place and one becomes more and more depressed. See? I am depressed. I am becoming more depressed. May all the world be depressed. So it's all... <laughs> and it sort of keeps growing like that, you see. Now that is our essential problem. It's this thinking. Yeah? Some of you may have come across this phrase from the Zen tradition of no mind. Unfortunately, that's been... Tr- been understood in the past, not so much presently, as actually sort of uh, uh, spacing out or going into a sort of deadness. But no mind in the Zen tradition is no thinking. See? Now, by placing your attention on the body, see, this is the point, this is why it's so important to stay with feeling and sensation, is because it comes off the mind. Hmm? Words, uh, stories encapsulate our experience. So when we note something with a word, it brings to it our history with that experience. And if we don't watch it, the mind begins to create another story. 
Now, one of the things that we come across is pain, you know, in the sitting. Pain in the knees, pain in the back, pain in the neck. Wherever there's, there's, a, there's part of your body, pain seems to be able to arise. So, if, if there is a pain which you know is actually caused by the posture, for instance, your knees... See, allow the attention to be drawn to it. Hmm? So there's pain in my knee here, so I become aware of that pain, you see. And as I become aware of it, I may also be aware of the aversion that I don't want to go there. I don't want to feel it. Hmm? There may be even a quick movement to try and change my posture. Now, what I'm trying to do is to access a point where I don't join any of that, because that's all mentation, that's all the mind. And my noting word might be just pain, pain. Now, the point of a noting word is not only to help the attention stay steady, to, as it were, bring the intellect to the service of this attention. It's there also to stop the intellect from wandering off, hmm? from worrying about your knee, whether it's going to explode or not. So you just put your attention on this pain, you think pain, pain. See, and then you can see the aversion. Well, there are two things that sometimes you can hold in your mind, just the original pain and the way you're backing off it, the way you don't want to be there. Hmm? You just stay with that. You don't do anything. This is the big big thing that has to be understood. You don't do anything at all. And eventually, as long as the pain doesn't become ridiculous, this aversion begins to disappear. Hmm? And then you'll find yourself quite equanimous, quite still with just this pain. Now... At that point, you see, you can go into the pain and begin to discover what is pain made up of. <clears throat> and you may be surprised that your noting word changes to something like tight or heat or stabbing or something else. It'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll change, the noting will change as your perception of what it is that makes up pain becomes more and more clear. Then you begin to realise that the word pain is a concept. It doesn't exist. It's the way the mind labels a particular set of sensations. But as soon as you say pain, there arises all sorts of fear and aversion. But when you're down there, within the pain, as it were, just as pressure, just as, just as heat, there's no, there's no problem with it. Right? Now, this only works to a certain extent. Right? As soon as the pain, as soon as, your, as soon as the knee become, you know, starts falling apart, then you want to move. Right? Now, when you move away from pain, this is uh, an opportunity to observe how the body, the sensations caused by the body change. So you're moving from unpleasant sensation to pleasant sensation. More importantly, how the mind reacts. Now, when I say mind here, I'm also talking about your emotional uh, 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 reaction to it. So whereas when it's painful, you can see this aversion, this wanting to pull away the fear, as you move slowly, see, moving, 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 as you move slowly and this pain disappears into a neutral feeling, the mind begins to move into a neutral state, becomes calm again. And what we're watching is how the mind is constantly reacting to the stimulus coming from the body, which includes the eyes and the ears, what we put on our tongue, uh, what we can smell with our nose. So that complex of the body and mind, you see, is something that we need to get interested in. 
because this is the way we experience the world, right? And frankly, nobody is going to take the same interest in your psychology as you. So you may as well, <laughs> you may as well become interested in it and find out how it is we create the world we live in. We create the world we live in. Huh? But it, this room, nobody would deny this room exists. But each of us has a different sensation when we walk into this room, a different feel for the room. We see different things of the room. Yeah? So the room we're actually experiencing is our own, created by our own minds. Hmm? So when you actually investigate your life, you'll see that you're constantly creating this world. And the Buddha puts it quite clearly. He says it's in this world, meaning well, what he would call the five aggregates, this body, mind, heart, uh, um, organism is you'll find here within us the the you know the fact of unsatisfactoriness the cause of it and the end of it so that's what we're trying to do through this meditation we're trying to access a point within us some observation post where we can as it were allow the body mind and heart to manifest and for us to study it when we say study it we mean just watch huh? And in just watching it, we become to see how, the, how this process works. Importantly, we see how the process creates an internal situation which is uh, uncomfortable, sometimes painful, emotional uh, pain. And we, realize, we begin to realize that we're the ones who are creating this. Now, at first, that's very disappointing because up until now, we've been able to blame everybody else. It's been a great in society and partners and all that. They're all to blame. And suddenly when you turn inward, you realise that actually you're to blame. And when you've got over that disappointment, you realise actually it's a liberation because just as you have created it, you can uncreate. You can decondition what we've already created. And the way we decondition it is just by letting it run its course. As soon as you try to fiddle with your psychology... As soon as you try to therapeutize yourself, you're, you're engaging. And the problem with that engagement is that that which is engaging is in a state of delusion. There's a case of the blind leading the blind, and you just end up being worse. But if you just let the heart and mind sort itself out, you find yourself moving slowly over time to more and more peaceful life. So that's how we deal with this psychology that we have. Hmm? Um, when something pleasant arises, just be aware of your attraction, of how you want to get involved. How when something unpleasant arises, be careful of how you want to push it away. Hmm? And just see if you can remain at that position. If you lose it, it's not a problem, just start again. Now, the final um, characteristic is the characteristic of not-self. And that often confuses people. And the reason it confuses people is because it's confused with a philosophical statement. There is not a self. The Buddha didn't say that. He just said everything you experience, because it's an experience of something, it can't be you, it can't be me. So when I have this pain in my knee, before, as a child, or even yesterday, I might have said, 
This is me, this is my pain. I am suffering. But when I find myself in this position of the objective observer, there seems to be a distance. There seems to be an objectivity. I'm sort of pushing this thing outward uh, to look at it. And if I can look at it, it obviously can't be what's looking. If I can feel it, it can't be what's feeling. Yeah? So the whole process of, of Vipassana, of insight meditation, begins as you begin to distance yourself from your inner experience. And the distance that you feel is the experience of not-self. Because it's not you, not me, not mine. Sometimes um, that completely collapses in our, in our ordinary daily life. For instance, when would you experience yourself as a physical self? As a total physical self. Yeah. Wouldn't it be something like when you catch your finger in a door? Yeah. Just at that moment, the pang of it. Yeah. There is just pain and just me. There's a complete collapse of me into that pain. Yeah. <laughs> That's the physical self. I jump out of that and begin to swear at the door. <laughs> but I've still got the pain. But now I've become an emotional self. Now I've become the self who rages and, and, and goes berserk when things don't go right. Yeah? When I get locked into my, uh, into my thinking that this door should never have been here in the first place, then I become the thought self. Right? And somehow, by objectifying all these things, I discover a deeper self, which we can call the observer. The objective observer, uh, the one who knows, whatever. But even that isn't the final state. The final state is when even that sense of self also disappears. Now, when that sense of self also disappears, does that mean you disappear? Does that mean that's it? You know, you, you're dead or something? Not at all. What you're discovering is that all these cells that we create are created. They're not the essential buddho which is within us. Hmm? Now... This is the double bind we're in because you can't get rid of that self. Even if you perceive it, even if you see how the self is created, we can't get rid of it. It can only disappear with the insights and with the conditioning of drawing away from that particular way of perceiving things. Okay? And that takes time and that's the practice. And we're constantly going from one side to the other. One minute we're a total self, completely angry, completely greedy, and next minute we're sitting in the meditation hall <laughs> in, this, in this wonderful spiritual level of observing what's arising and passing away. But hopefully in a period of time, it's more this side than it was that side. So that's what uh, the Buddha is talking about when he says not self. And one of the crucial things is to begin to recognize that, you know, when we think we have control over this body, uh, the more we investigate this control, we find it's actually very peripheral. Sure, you can jump up and down and wave your arms about, but, I mean, what can you do about aging, sickness, death? I mean, those are the crucial things you'd like to be in control of. And it's recognizing lack of control means it can't be self because the definition of self is that this is me. Me means I'm in control. So these points of investigation, you see, at the beginning of your sitting, you can actually say to yourself, 
during this sitting, I'm going to be more aware of the process of impermanence, or I'm going to be much more aware of how I get caught up in things, trying to catch it, come out and see this process of wanting and not wanting. Or I can just begin to practice this business of distancing from things. See, So, for instance, you're looking at me now, and um, I'm presuming <laughs> that my, my face, my body, is, is your consciousness, is what's in your attention now. Now, instead of looking at me, keep looking at me, but become aware of the distance between us. The space that there is between us. See? So now you can do that inwardly. So that you're looking at your knee, but you can also be aware of the fact that there's some sort of distance, some sort of mental space between that knowing and feeling and what it is you're experiencing. That's your not-self. That's the experience of not me, not mine. So, um, just to summarise all that, we have these techniques. So there's a noting technique, which is meant to be a sort of background word, just pushing the attention on the object. If you find it's very up in your face like that, then it, what, it's, what, what you're discovering is that your intellect is, is the way you're looking at things. Okay? So it's right up in... Every time you say rising, falling, you're actually more aware of the word rising and falling than you are aware of the actual feeling of rising and falling. So this shows that this intelligence, this intuitive intelligence, is locked into thinking. And it's just by keeping on displacing your attention onto feeling that it's drawn out of the intellect. And you'll know that's happening because the word begins to recede, as it were, and it just becomes a sort of little help to keep your attention. You shouldn't be sort of looking around for words. That can, that can be absolutely awful. So sort of get your dictionary out and then you really had it. You're not trying to be poetic. Any word that comes to mind will do. And if one doesn't, feeling is fine. No feeling, thinking, that, that's fine. It's just keeping the intellect occupied, that's all. This isn't, this isn't your final state, right? This isn't the final stage. You don't keep doing this. As your concentration grows, it, I mean, it takes, a, takes a few days to get there, the meditator might be confident to let go of the noting. But you might find that if you let go of it too quickly, the mind just wanders. And remember, the concentration you're building up once you've let it out on a thought pattern, the more concentration you have, the more power you have, the more difficult it is to draw the mind back in once you've empowered it. So you have to be slightly careful that you just keep this gentle pressure on yourself, right? Just a gentle push to remain present. That's all. Just keep bringing yourself back into the present moment. The slow walking, the whole idea of, the, of slowing down is because the more you slow down, the more you see. I mean, you've all seen these nature films where they've slowed, you know, like a frog, frog's tongue, you know, uh, just shooting out to catch um, a fly. Yeah? You've all seen that, haven't you? Surprising, isn't it? So it's <laughs> and, of course, you wouldn't normally see it. But by slowing it down, you can see it. So by slowing your actions down, you see, it'll affect the mind. The body slows down, the mind slows down. And you're able to see these things more and more clearly. So it's worth making the effort just to you know, really slow down today. Really just find yourself relaxing. That's the operative word. Hmm? 
if you over relax, of course, you fall asleep. So you've got to, you've got to know the, where the balance is. But really, just see if, see if you can really just take your time. Just get the feeling that you know, have an eternity of time to do the simplest of things. Not that the simplest of things need take the eternity of time. <laughs> but it's just that attitude that we're no longer in a rush. Right? We're not producing anything. Even at the end of those of you who are staying a week, I don't give any certificates out. See, there's nothing. There's nothing at all. You just leave and I, I just say goodbye. That's it. <laughs> so there's nothing to be gained in that sort of worldly sense. Here we're trying to develop the opposite side, which is this mindfulness, careful attention, and just relax. See? <clears throat> and the relaxation will come natural to you <clears throat> if you take away any, any idea of achieving anything. And just keep reminding yourself that the moment-to-moment awareness is the achievement. Full stop. You don't have to go anywhere else. Any immediate questions, clarifications, <clears throat> criticisms? <laughs> Very good. I hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. So if you do some, I think I'm running over time a bit, but if you do some walking meditation... Now, in the walking meditation, uh, the first part you can do rapidly. You get some exercise, just up and down. Hmm? Don't worry about what people think about you. And just, just go fast up and down, left, right, left, right. Keep the nosing going. And then when you feel you've sort of energized the body a bit, then slow down. See if you can do this slow walking meditation. And when you come back, uh, on the way back, you don't have to go that slow, but come back with that mindfulness, you see. Uh, walking meditation is very good for focusing the mind because A, it's a neutral sensation and B, it's pretty obvious. It's not like the breath. I mean, your foot's lifting and <laughs> you've got to sort of stay with it. And therefore, it's very good for developing just a moment-to-moment mindfulness. See? And bring that into your, into your sitting with you. Okay. And I'll come in just before lunch. Very good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.